0: Welcome to Madeline Looks Back, a podcast dedicated to the female gaze. I'm Natalia. And I'm Veronica. And today we will be talking about Killing Eve. Killing Eve is a series from BBC America. It premiered in 2018. If you don't have access to BBC America, you can also watch it on Hulu. And it was created by one of the goddesses of this podcast, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And she wrote most of the first season, And the second season was largely written by Emerald Fennel. This
1: show is basically a show of a secret agent hunting down a trained assassin slash serial killer. But unlike a lot of renditions of that, that that we may have seen in previous movies and TV shows, this is a female assassin and the detective tracking her down is also a female. So we have like this interesting new gender dynamic in what's A very old and tired sort of script, I guess you might say. The two main characters are Eve. She works for MI5 and then MI6, I believe. Yes. She started MI5. Okay. And then Villanelle, who's the serial killer that she's tracking, who's kind of like a Russian operative, but it's sort of fuzzy and becomes clear later. And Eve has been quietly compiling, in just her normal administrative job, she's been quietly compiling all of these different cases that she thinks are linked together with the same killer. And she believes this to be a female serial killer. And in the first episode, she gets recruited into MI6 because she has picked up on this, and that's something that MI6 has been watching for a while. So she gets pulled onto the team that's tracking this very prolific and very talented female serial killer. And she really starts working in the case. And Eve is a little bit different than maybe like the James Bond characters we've seen before in roles like this, trying to track down uh, serial killers and trained assassins, because it's clear that instead of just like the series, isn't quite so black and white, like Eve isn't the good guy and Villanelle isn't the bad guy that explicitly Eve has this odd like fascination and admiration for Villanelle's serial killing career, I suppose you could say.
0: And just to introduce another Great character is Carolyn, who re- uh, recruits Eve to MI6. Yeah, and she's just so interesting because she kind of starts out like as a mentor for Eve, but then as the show progresses, we start to realize that she—it's just impossible to tell like where her loyalties lie. Like she has all these russian friends and it's like they're on the side of this like dark operative like the 12 that we don't know what they want or who they are and we just can't tell like if she's on their side or on mi6's side
1: carolyn is interesting because she is what you'd expect to be like a quintessential spy in any movie where she just never shows her hand and you never really know exactly what she knows because there's like layers upon layers upon layers of deception and like it's really fun
0: yeah, and it yeah it takes us like half a season to know that one of the guys on Eve's team is her son.
1: Yes, she just like <laughs> neglects to mention it.
0: <laughs> so yeah, Eve's psyche is definitely interesting to look at, and the way the series starts is just so interesting. I was just rewatching the first episode and was like, "What is happening?" But basically, the opening scene is Villanelle like sitting in an ice cream parlor, like staring at a little girl and freaking her out and then she sees that the little girls like smiling at the ice cream man and so Villanelle tries smiling too so she you can tell that she like doesn't really understand like human connection and emotion uh, but anyway the next scene Eve wakes up next to her husband just screaming for no reason and it's such an interesting introduction to her character and it's like why is she s- just screaming first thing in the morning And later in the episode, she's like talking to her husband about how they would murder each other. And she has like this really elaborate plan. And she thinks that that is sexy to talk about that.
1: Yeah, the part with Eve waking up screaming, I feel like that actually kind of sets up some of the other things that happen later in the series, because she wakes up screaming because her arms have fallen asleep. And her husband flips over and he's like, Oh my God, are you okay? Are you having a bad dream? Are you dying? And she's like, My arms fell asleep. It was really scary. And then I think in the second episode, um, one of her coworkers says something along the lines of like, Oh, you should watch out or you're gonna get into trouble on this investigation. And she says, like, trouble is never interested in me. And I feel like she's like somewhat bored or dissatisfied with her life, but also just sort of she's like somewhere on the spectrum of not really understanding like murder and violence and social cues as like a quote unquote, normal or average person might. like I feel like that's set up fairly early on,
0: yeah. and um, that's definitely why Carolyn recruits her is that she sees that Eve almost admires Villanelle for how smart of a- an assassin she is in the first season. And so the way that she describes her is like, A genius or like an artist, but like that kind of propels her to keep diving deeper into this and like find evidence that nobody else in MI6 has been paying attention to because they just don't want to like jump on board with this assumption that the killer is a woman.
1: Yeah, and it's there's another piece that Eve says where she she's like just gotten fired from her job because she kind of made a mistake and she's sitting in this coffee shop with Carolyn and. They're they're just talking about the case and talking about the serial killer, and Eve is basically like, you know, I want to understand what makes a person, what makes a woman able to do that. And then she's just like, I'm a big fan. Like, Mm -hmm. fuck it. Like, it's not my job to, like, catch this woman anymore. Like, I'm a big fan of her work. She's an amazing killer. Like, she's really good at what she does.
0: To the reason she got fired, not just a mistake, but that she just refuses to follow the rules. And she's kind of like following the investigation in like these unapproved ways which are effective it does get her closer to finding the killer but it also gets all these people killed she puts like like this young man whose relationship to her is confusing maybe like he's related to her husband but in danger like he could have been murdered so yeah it's not just that she made a mistake but that she just like refuses to follow protocol which is again the reason that carolyn recruits her
1: I mean, I feel like that kind of mirrors also what the show is doing, because the show in so many ways breaks from, like, what we understand to be conventional ideas of, like, female violence and also sexuality, and it's all just wound up, like, very tightly in this sort of confusing and inextricable ball. And if there are weird noises in the background, it's because my radiator is just, like, really having a day. Oh, no.
0: (laughs) I was wondering (laughs) what that was. That's a pretty good segue into some reading that I did for this, so I'll jump into that and um, tell you what Laura Cox has to say about misogyny, maids, and murderesses toward a feminist <laughs> and the <laughs> subtitle is toward a feminist reappraisal of Jean Genet's Le Bonds. So she's looking at a play, and I won't get into that, but I'll just kind of like talk about the groundwork that she lays, like about how we look at female murderers. So basically, what she says is that in Western tradition, women who murder are typically depicted as being somehow removed from femininity, because in a patriarchal society, violence has no place in womanhood. Patriarchal society tells us women are naturally unviolent, they're passive, and so when they're, they're trying to like explain away why a woman would kill, they kind of have to remove her from femininity. So, Cox talks about how in kind of Western, like, modern times, and I'm quoting her here, male murderers have been persistently construed as exceptional, all-powerful geniuses, while female killers are made to occupy the somewhat less glamorous role of disempowered monsters. We kind of see that being subverted in Killing Eve because Eve absolutely sees Villanelle as a genius and an artist. And so she's kind of already, like, subverting that idea that women who kill have to be aberrations because they're into violence, like, violence just isn't intrinsically male or female. Cox explains that understanding this is not to, like, valorize female violence. Like, obviously, we're not saying that that's morally right in any way. But it's just important to look at the stereotype because it reveals something about how patriarchy, like, wants women to be viewed as passive and lacking in agency. And the last thing that kind of connects her work to Killing Eve is she talks about how these stereotypes of like these marginalized women who kill are typically like especially applied to women who identify as lesbian or bisexual because they're kind of understanding that as separate from femininity. And that Hmm. definitely comes into play here. We're shown early on that Villanelle is bisexual. Like she wakes up in bed with a man and a woman, although Eve's sexuality is. not really, like, explained or acknowledged throughout the show, although we do see her having an infatuation with Villanelle. So yeah, lots of interesting things that we can uh, latch onto there. But I think the most interesting is the fact that Villanelle, she plays up her femininity. And... I don't, it's hard to tell, like sometimes it seems like she's using it, like femininity is a mask that she uses to manipulate people, to get herself into situations where she can like reach easily reach her targets where a man could not. But sometimes it also seems like she just likes, like she likes feminine clothes. She loves like beautiful clothing and expensive things. So she. it's an interesting play there with violence and femininity in that character.
1: This is very interesting because your research is it's parallel to the research that I did. I ended up reading some excerpts by Paula Ruth Gilbert in her 2006 book Violence and the Female Imagination Quebec's Women Writers Reframe Gender in North American Cultures. And just to kind of pick up on what you were saying about Villanelle being like a bisexual or more of like a, a fluid character and that being outside the normal bounds of femininity, what Gilbert says in, in her book is that Um, Well, she she gets into this, actually, this entire discussion of representation, and she says that violent images are fundamentally an artifact embodying ideological assumptions, leading to what was decried in the 1960s as the pornography of violence. Mm -hmm. And then she continues on saying that women's attempts to transform themselves from sexual and violent object victims to sexual and violent speaking subjects of representation constitutes another form of revision. So that's sort of like what we talk about all the time is being the female gaze, where like women are trying to reinvent the role of women from being like the recipient of violence to being sort of like a subject of representation for violence, which I guess would be Villanelle in this series, would be like a perfect example of that. She goes on to say that Suzanne Kepler finds that representation is too often interpreted merely as a reflection of reality and people neglect to ask who is holding the mirror for whose benefit and from what angle representations are not just a matter of mirrors, reflections, and keyholes. Someone is making them and someone is looking at them through a complex array of means and conventions. So again, that goes back to like the female gaze and just like a representation in any artistic work or any TV series being Not just like a reflection of reality, but something that's actively um, constructed. Mm. So all of this is leading up to this this conversation, which I think is particularly pertinent here. But what if the author is female and intends her feminine, erotic, sexual, and violent representations for consumption by a female audience? What then moves into the subject position role? perhaps the most remained to this potential subject position in the form of a sexually violent woman created by a woman and related to my early discussions of the monstrous, what Mary Russo calls the risk excess and modernity of the female grotesque. And I think this is actually exactly where Villanelle fits in as being like outside of like the normal and the normal bounds of feminine. And, she describes the grotesque as reminiscent of the cave, the grotto-esque, the low, hidden, earthly, dark, material, visceral space that evokes the cavernous, anatomical female body, a metaphor that valorizes traditional images of the Earth Mother, the Crone, Witch, and Vampire, and of course, the serial killer. Mm-hmm. So all of that is just, you know, it's, it's just like this interesting exploration on the fringes of like what we would consider like normal, I suppose.
0: Yeah, definitely, I can see Villanelle fitting into that idea of, like, maybe all these, like, scary things that are in our subconscious, like, she she has it at the surface. Like, she can revel in violence because, I don't know, I don't know how to say this. Um, well, she's kind of a monster, right? Yeah, yeah. But not because she's a woman, but because she's a psychopath. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I feel like the fact that
1: she's a female psychopath, like that's something that we don't see too often in pop culture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, going back to that, uh, what Laura Cox was saying is that we can we see a lot of um, movies and series about like this evil genius who is portrayed as you know ambiguous. Like, is he evil or is he just like? Above society and we rarely get to see a representation of a woman like that and Villanelle is that in so many ways like she's obviously not a character we want to relate to in any way but it is interesting to see those kind of characteristics in a female character. And we often forget to talk about the actors. So Jodie Comer, who portrays Villanelle, is just freaking amazing, as is Sandra, who portrays Eve. (laughs) (laughs) Really
1: quickly, what you said about Evil Genius, I found pretty striking because the two things that come to mind there are Sherlock,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: the series, the BBC series with Benedict Cumberbatch, and then also, was it the second Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan, like the new movie, Mm -hmm. where, of course, I don't know why Benedict Cumberbatch is also a villain. I feel like those two in particular, like Benedict Cumberbatch as a villain in Star Trek, and also, shoot, what's the villain's name in Sherlock that he's hunting the whole time?
0: Um, Moriarty. Yeah,
1: Moriarty. I had an extra T in there. I feel like those two villains are super inaccessible and super smart. And as a viewer, you're like, oh my god, they're an evil genius. Like, will they win? And it's like a little bit scary, but it's also really impressive. But in watching Killing Eve, I didn't actually have that same reaction. I was just like, ooh, like she's really creepy and I don't know how to feel about this. And like, is she going to be successful or is she completely unhinged? And it was just, I feel like the, the reaction is so much different if that villain, like that evil genius is a female versus a male. Because males, like when they're completely closed off and inaccessible, it's like kind of impressive. And I guess it's also kind of like a reflection of our gender norms. But as a female, you're like, oh, that's like particularly creepy and unsettling.
0: Yeah, exactly. That unsettled feeling just reveals that we have, like, so ingrained in us these stereotypes that, like, oh, women are not supposed to be that way. Like, femininity and violence are not supposed to go together. But that's just a total construct. Like, violence just isn't gendered. I also wanted to bring up the review of Killing Eve in The New Yorker by Emily Nussbaum, who I've cited before on this podcast. She talks about the series as a staging ground for female anger in scenes that are about the cathartic thrill of getting away with it in a world in which everyone is dumb enough to see you as a helpless little girl. So that just goes back to how Villanelle just uses her femininity. A lot of times, like, even when she's interacting with Constantine, who's her handler, like, they both know they can't trust each other. They both know that the other is, like, a cold-blooded killer. But they have these weird interactions sometimes where she, like, plays up this idea of, like, a father-daughter relationship or, like, a brother-sister relationship where she plays up that helpless little girl act to, to manipulate him which I think is really interesting, and she does that over and over again in the show, like, when she is stabbed by Eve at the end of the first season, and she's in the hospital, like, she kind of plays up this act to, like, attract sympathy, and it actually allows her to be a more effective killer. There's also a point where she's killing this woman at, like, a fundraiser, and she needs to slip into the women's bathroom and a man stops her and is like, hey, you're not supposed to go in there. And she's like, oh, well, she asked me for a tampon. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, go in there. Like He doesn't even want to deal with the idea of something as feminine as a tampon and a period. And that's what allows her to slip in there and kill this woman.
1: Can we talk about female serial killers for a second? Yes. Okay, so <laughs> I'm so excited about this. In her book Gilbert has like this little aside for the end about female cel- serial killers and she's working off of a definition or some work from Kelleher and Kelleher and she says that their Kelleher and Kelleher argue that female serial killers are able to commit crimes for a median of about eight years which is actually twice the length of the median for male serial killers So, female serial killers are actually more effective and can operate for a longer amount of time without being caught. And female serial killers are particularly methodical, which we've definitely seen in the series. Like, at one point toward the very beginning, Eve is talking about how creative Villanelle is in her kills. Like, she definitely has flair and style, is what Eve says. Like, um, one of Villanelle's first kills on the series, she uses a hairpin that she pulls out of her hair and stabs into this guy's eye. And it has like a needle in it where she injects poison into his body, like through his eyeball, Mm -hmm. some crazy stuff. But she, I guess Kelleher and Keller say that in general, female serial killers prefer elderly children, victims or lovers or spouses And typically, female serial killers begin at 25, which is kind of actually just about how old Villanelle is in the series. I think they say she's like mid-late 20s, and she's been killing for a few years, so that seems to fit. And then they're also more successful when operating alone, and when they're not motivated by sex, because they're more likely to use a weapon or method that is difficult to discern, like the hairpin, or like the woman that she kills at the fundraiser with is asthmatic, and she uses like a unscented perfume that has some kind of chemical in it that causes her to have an asthma attack and essentially suffocate.
0: I want to talk about what you said of how they work alone, Mm -hmm. Um, because there's that great moment in season four where, or sorry, season one, episode four. (laughs) I was like, whoa! (laughs) I I went to the future, I watched it, it's great. (laughs) There's this point where Villanelle has kind of gone rogue a couple times, you know, kind of disobeying the orders of her superiors, who are, like, completely, like, we have no idea who they are. And so she's told she can't work alone anymore, and she has to go work with the, these other two killers, a man and a woman, the woman she has a past with. And the man, the guy is so interesting in this dynamic, because he is so insecure around Villanelle. (laughs) Like, he feels like he has to assert his dominance all the time, like, there's a point where uh, Villanelle's like, okay, let's go this way. And he's like, no, 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 I'm the boss. Let's go this way. And it's the same way that she was saying. But he just, like, needs to assert that he's the boss, and she's just not having it. And obviously ends up killing him. And yeah, it's really interesting that like she just has to get rid of them, even this girl who she has a past with, because she needs to work on her own.
1: I love that. I one particular piece that I just want to pull out is that Villanella is essentially like she kills the guy because she hates him, and she kills whoever she wants anyway. But he keeps calling her ex Pumpkin, and she's like, "You are not a pumpkin. You are beautiful." And <laughs> yes. it's just like it's so good. But it also segues straight into this point, of course, that Gilbert makes. She's summarizing Caputi. I don't know who Kaputi is, but I'll find out. And Caputi says that 74% of the world's serial killers are in the U S where feminism is well ensconced and the backlash against it is particularly severe. So he's saying that there's an association between misogyny and femicide. And I think that it's interesting that like this interaction where this guy is being just like, he's like mansplaining everything and being toxically masculine is also, like, something that results in her killing him. And she just seems to take particular delight in killing men who fall into kind of these traps that she makes for them. Like, she likes playing games. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the first kills on the series is she goes to Italy and there's, like, this old, wealthy, powerful man who is throwing a house party and he, she kind of tricks the guy's grandson to, like, bringing the guy upstairs and she's waiting in an upstairs room and she lures him in by pretending that she's there to like have sex with him and he completely falls for it completely eats it up and then she like switches the tables and this is the one that she kills with a hairpin to the eye but she seems to really like to as you mentioned earlier just play on those normal conventional like female male interactions and then subvert them and kill people like she seems to get particular satisfaction from that
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's a quote in Laura Cox's work that goes back to what you were saying about, like, punishment, and she says that female killers are disproportionately punished in comparison with male murderers, and they attribute this imbalance to the fact that violence and femininity are deemed incommensurable in Western patriarchy, while, as Schmid argues, don't know who Schmid is, a violent man occasions no surprise in our culture." So yeah, she is able to always surprise her victims because they just don't expect it at all.
1: It goes also off of, some, of course, something that Gilbert said, which is that often women are they're rarely portrayed as being powerful in their own right. They're usually portrayed as being powerful within a specific role, like in their role as a mother or a Madonna or as being an evil whore. Mm. So I feel like Villanelle is just a powerful woman, not just a powerful female serial killer.
0: Yeah, definitely if she weren't an absolute psychopath who loved killing, she could have been a powerful woman in another sense.
1: Oh, also really quickly, Caputi is actually a woman, Jane Caputi, and I shouldn't have assumed.
0: Oh, well, good thing you looked that up.
1: I don't know if this is relevant to anything, but I thought it was fascinating being like a literary person, a person who enjoys literature. So... Serial killers, like that phrase didn't originate, as we know, until the 1970s when the FBI began began, um, tracking and classifying what they called at the time mass murderers. So serial killers are actually very rare, but they, quote unquote, according to Gilbert, occupy much of our imaginations because they're fascinating, because they're literary. You have a lot of the times with serial killers, they have random victims or Like, they're pretty random. It's just a person who fits the particular profile of the victim that they like to attack. And then they, of course, are the villain. And their actions, whenever a serial killer kills, because it is so, like, quote-unquote, desperately random, and that's according to Halberstam, who Gilbert is quoting here, it demands explanation. So we get really hooked on it. So even though to be killed by a serial killer is, like, probably the odds are somewhere close to winning the lottery, if not less. Because of like the way that they operate and the power dynamics and the randomness of it, we just are obsessed with them.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely, especially recently, true crime has been such a big thing because we're so fascinated by that. And it also makes me think of, oh, what's the name of that show? Mindhunter, about that history that you're talking about in the 1970s when they first coined that term. Kind of along the same lines, female spies are not something that we see often. You talked about James Bond earlier, which is great because the women are always kind of these minor characters who maybe help Bond out. Maybe they're kind of a femme fatale kind of character. Mostly he just sleeps with them and that's the last time we see them. But that is what makes Eve also a really compelling character is that she's just this Sherlock style, like highly intelligent person who doesn't care about rules just cares about solving whatever she's obsessed with and that's a type of character that we don't see often
1: yeah and her husband is also well nico i mean were they
0: married yeah, yeah they're married. okay
1: he's also just like lovely and sweet and supportive and boring and uh it's interesting to for me i felt so bad for him but of course, apparently I'm slightly sexist, as I guess we probably all are, but I feel like in similar series where there's, like, a super, like, a hyper-intelligent person who just has, like, like a man who has, like, a lovely, sweet, kind of boring woman, I'm like, well, what did you expect dating that guy? But right. instead for Nico, I'm like,
0: oh, sad. Yeah, I mean, that, that dynamic is really interesting. Like, you never see Bond get married. Like, that just wouldn't even cross his mind, or our mind, that he would have a wife, but... Eve is married, and when she goes into it, like, Carolyn first kind of tells her, like, because they're out late, and Carolyn's like, oh, your husband's gonna think that you're having an affair, and Eve is like, no, 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 he would never think that, and Carolyn kind of clarifies, like, no, no, you should make him think that, because that's better for him to believe than knowing that she's in MI6 and, like, in this highly dangerous operation. yeah. And there's this kind of interesting thing with all these women spies in this show that, you know, Carolyn is a mother, Eve is a wife, and they have to navigate that in a way that a male spy typically doesn't have to, like, they usually have no ties, no family ties in that way.
1: It's actually really similar to the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, because in that one, she's also very much juggling like these, she has like that added layer of pressure where men are allowed to be independent and allowed to pursue careers and allowed to have like that level of removal from a family situation, but women aren't. They have that additional responsibility.
0: Yeah, or like an expectation that they're going to be involved in their child's life or in their marriage, whereas a a man doesn't – like if you see a man involved in his child's life, you're like, oh, what a wonderful father. It's like, no, that should just be the norm. (laughs) I feel like it's important to talk about sexuality in this show, but I'm also don't feel qualified. Yeah. There's basically like two camps. On one side, there are people who are accusing the show of queer baiting, hmm. which is portraying a character, and Sherlock is one of the shows accused of doing this, portraying this potentially queer relationship, but then never making it canon, so never having the characters kiss or confirm that they're in love with each other so that you're kind of luring in this queer audience with the idea that there might be some representation, but then it's never explicitly said. And on the other side, there's this idea like um, people really enjoyed the queer subtext of the first season, and then in the second season where Villanelle and Eve are kind of interacting with each other a little more... And having this moment of, like, there's this scene where Villanelle and Eve are working together at this point, and Villanelle has a mic. She's, like, infiltrated in this situation, and Eve has the earpiece on, and she's listening. And it's, like, they're going to bed, and Villanelle is speaking to Eve through the mic and kind of seducing her. And Eve kind of grabs this um, guy, Hugo, who she's working with and has sex with him, but while she's listening to Villanelle in her ear. So there's this kind of like sex by proxy situation Hmm. that starts to make their um, attraction for each other more explicit, but also at the same time, it becomes a little bit less compelling as it was in the first season where you just don't know.
1: I feel like the way that I interpreted the first season was that Eve is very much sort of on this, the boundary of a border in a way. Like she is... Tracking Villanelle to catch her, presumably, but she's also tracking Villanelle because she's fascinated by her and a fan of her work, as she says. Mm -hmm. So, like, yes, she's sanctioned to track Villanelle as a serial killer, but like, no, it's a little bit twisted that she is actually, like, oh, you're such a good serial killer. Like, that's kind of against a, a conventional societal norm. And I feel like, in that same way that she's like perhaps grappling with her attraction to Villanelle. And, like, I guess that's also sort of on the boundary of a historically conventional societal norm, where it's very much, like, gender binary. Yeah, I don't know. I don't identify as queer, so I I don't really feel like I have a lot of space to be weighing in on this either, but...
0: Yeah, I will um, go back to Emily Nussbaum's review of the series. She's kind of, she's been talking about how Villanelle uses femininity to get away with murder, and she says... But it has sometimes occurred to me that killing Eve is itself getting away with murder. In the show, murder and lesbianism feel existentially linked, like two great tastes that taste great together. In the 1990s, that same premise got the Sharon Stone ice pick killer pulp blockbuster basic instinct picketed for homophobia. In 2019, female viewers are cheering on the same concept. Maybe killing Eve is different because it's funnier. Maybe it's because it's made by women. Or because murderous rage seems right now like a relevant basis basis for female bonding so i like the way she phrased that and kind of contends with this idea that the show is in a way perpetuating this idea that murderous women are more likely to be lesbians because that's like somehow removed from femininity although that's doesn't seem to be the case with villanelle at all and that can get a little bit problematic and that there's like a history of this in horror films and in a lot of genres where the villain is often queer in some way, and that kind of creates this like identity problem where someone queer who is watching that is expected to root against someone who is like the only representation of their sexuality on screen. So it's not perfect, and it's complicated. Is where I land on that.
1: That actually really resonates with me. Um, what Nussbaum said about how
0: is it that she phrased
1: it? The concept that like murder and. Les- like lesbianism yeah. are linked because they're both like yeah, taboo in, yeah
0: in the show murder and lesbianism feel existentially linked like two great tastes that taste great together
1: that's a really nice sentence but also I I agree with that like in falling into like being a fan of a serial killer and into kind of like accepting killing as an okay thing to do I'm sorry I keep calling her a serial killer and she is technically an assassin um yeah. although I Kind of suspected that maybe she'd be a serial killer just for fun but anyway I agree yes um I like yes Eve is like it's not okay to approve of or be a fan of an assassin and it's I feel like she's attracted to Villanelle but in the same way is like it it is problematic it's very problematic because she's like it's not okay to be lesbian but I don't know if it's because like I don't think that the producers or the character or the actresses would ever be like it's not okay to be lesbian it's just like they're kind of more like, it's not okay to be lesbian with a serial killer, or an assassin, but because, like, that's the only female love tension in the show, it it is kind of saying that it's, like, not okay.
0: Yeah, it does get complicated, and Well, first of all, she talks, uh, Nussbaum mentions uh, lesbianism, but I think it is important to say that Villanelle is bisexual. Like, she doesn't identify herself, but we do see evidence of that, and that is, like, a whole other issue of representation on screen. Through the arc of the first season, you know, first Eve is obsessed with Villanelle, and then she gets to know Villanelle. Like, Villanelle comes to her house, and she's like, I just want to have dinner with you. And when they're having this dinner, Villanelle tries to, like manipulate Eve a little bit and telling her like, you know, I don't have a choice. I have to do what they tell me. Like, I have to kill who they tell me to kill and kind of puts on this convincing act that at the moment Eve calls bullshit, but it comes back toward the end of the season where Eve and Carolyn are trying to, well, not so much Carolyn. Eve is trying to help uh, Villanelle and this other girl who we meet, Nadia, who's also an assassin. And she says, like, these girls are being manipulated. They're being forced to kill. But like we were saying earlier, like, I think that Villanelle would probably be a serial killer if she weren't an assassin. Like, by the time that she got recruited, you know, there's a point where Eve is looking at her kind of criminal record and she's been lashing out violently and killing long before she became an assassin. And so it's this interesting, Eve still is convinced that she can help these girls and that there's this kind of higher power, and it seems to be men, like we mostly see it represented through Constantine and this other handler, who are forcing them to do this and manipulating them, but that kind of robs Villanelle of agency. And we kind of see that's not the case, because even when they tell Villanelle, don't kill this person, she'll kill them anyway. Like, she, at the end of the day, is making that choice herself.
1: Yeah, I get the sense, um, and this could just be my interpretation and me wanting to have a really powerful female character in this series, but I get the sense that Villanelle is, like, operating within those confines because she feels like it. Like, it's something that, like, she enjoys playing with people before they die, let's be clear.
0: Yeah, and she loves seeing them take their last breath and seeing, like, the light go out of their eyes. She enjoys that. She loves it when their soul just
1: sinks deeper into their bodies. She
0: has this crazy
1: monologue that's like really disturbing, but also hilarious where she's like, your soul just goes really deep into your body. Like, I swear people think it like lifts out of you, but it just goes so deep down and becomes so tiny and stays there forever.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Like eternally dying.
1: Yes. I love that moment. It's wild. Um, But I I get the sense that this is actually just like, it's like when somebody is really good at a job that they enjoy, (laughs) I think that's what she's found. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and I feel like Eve is falling into that patriarchal idea of like, oh, she's not doing this because she wants to and kind of robbing her of her agency, but she absolutely does want to. And she just gets paid to do it for the Twelve specifically, so that's why she works for them.
1: Yeah, I I would say that it's both. Like Eve is onto something where there is a patriarchy that's controlling assassins or some kind mm-hmm. of structure similar to that, but also… I think that Villanelle is making this choice. It seems that she's talented enough that if she wanted to leave and actually get out of it, she has enough money and resources that she could and they probably wouldn't find her.
0: Although I think she would run into problems with money because she loves buying stuff so much that she would run out. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So I guess really she's bound more by money and capitalism than anything else. Yeah, it's not men. It's capitalism. (laughs) Ugh, is a fascinating character. She is. I think the performance is really, like, what makes the show, and Emily Nussbaum Nussbaum talks about this, like, how the plot of the show sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense, like, who are the twelve? Is Constantine with the twelve? Is Carolyn with the twelve? Like, the whole kind of underlying conspiracy Doesn't make a lot of sense and I get lost um, in it, but it's really just about this like electric interaction between these two characters that carries the show. Oh, Villanelle's outfits.
1: Did we talk about Villanelle's outfits? Let's please. Okay. (laughs) You go. This is you. (laughs) Okay.
0: It's just another like marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Like, it's just a beautiful show to look at because she's always wearing amazing outfits, but. One outfit in particular is really great when Constantin is um, telling her that he's not sure she needs to be assessed before she can continue, like, killing her targets because she's been going off the rails a little bit. And when she goes to get assessed by a man, she wears this huge pink frilly dress with these great, like, black combat boots. So she's, like, again, performing femininity with this outfit and kind of giving this guy... This idea of like she's just like a little girl, and they kind of don't really fall for it because they know her. But, um, well, I think
1: it's also because the dress is made of mesh and not actual yeah. fabric and because she's wearing combat boots not heels and like yeah <laughs> it's and like, like she maybe put a-, a bulletproof bra underneath <laughs> yes and like also her hair isn't like curly and flowy like a princess it's in this like super tight bun with is it a pink scrunchie is she wearing a pink scrunchie with that outfit she might be so it's <laughs> it like she literally just put on a pink dress but like it wasn't even the right pink dress and nothing else matched
0: <laughs> <laughs> And then she also, like, buys clothes for Eve. Mm -hmm. And, like, she, you know, when she steals her suitcase... Eve just kind of has these, like, she even makes fun of her and the point when they're meeting, she's like, is that a sweater attached to a shirt?
1: Like, are they two separate pieces? How does it
0: work? (laughs) She's so confused by that. And, like, she kind of takes all Eve's, like, cheap clothes out of her suitcases and, and instead puts in this, like, beautiful dress that looks stunning on Eve. And, you know, she tells her, you have a really beautiful body. And she kind of, like, I don't know, like, that is an empowering thing about her where she's like, you should show off your beautiful body, like, why not? And I think that why not is often like, oh, well, then society tells you that you're distracting men in the workplace or whatever, (laughs) but Villanelle does not care about that.
1: No, she often uses that to her advantage. Although it is also a little bit interesting because it clearly makes Eve uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And in that way, like, is that so much different than any other unwelcome advance? Because, like... It is also kind of a form of control. It's a power move.
0: Yeah, that's a really good Where she's
1: like, it. I'm taking your clothes away, the things that you chose for yourself, and I'm telling you to wear these things. And yes, they're beautiful and designer and thousands of dollars and they look stunning on her. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of a little bit like job of the hut with Princess Leia.
0: Yeah, that's a good way to put it for sure. But like it's not a metal
1: bikini though, it's a gown. It's a beautiful, gorgeous gown. <laughs> it is beautiful.
0: <laughs> and at least like when Eve tries it on, she likes the way that she looks, where like Princess Leia was enslaved and hated that outfit.
1: I mean, we can only assume it was desert and it was hot, and her underwear were made out of metal. So <laughs> that
0: sucks. We're so sorry, Leia.
1: <laughs> yeah, gosh, that's just the worst bikini.
0: Ugh, terrible.
1: I know. For some reason, I'm just remembering that scene when we were talking about outfits where Villanelle, she has, like, these flowy, wide-legged pants and, like, this, like, really awesome top. And she comes back to her apartment building after killing somebody and there's this old woman coming down the stairs. And she's just, like, mocking and taunting this old woman yes. who's, like, coming down with, like, she, like, stepped on one step and then stepped on with the other foot. So she's standing with both feet on one step and then stepped down like, how little kids go up and down stairs. Mm-hmm. And she's just, like, acting like the woman's a dog. And she's, like... I don't remember the French, but she's basically like, come here, come on, you can do it. (laughs) The woman is like, like, screw you, basically. But it actually occurred to me when I was rewatching the series that I don't know if she was trying to be mean. I mean, I think she probably was. Or if she like, because she's a psychopath, doesn't understand that to encourage someone like she's like you're encouraging a dog to come is actually super rude.
0: They have an interesting relationship because then when the woman gets to the bottom of the stairs and is already about to throw the bags in the trash can, she's like, oh, do you want me to help you with those bags? So she knows she's being a dick.
1: (laughs) Although the woman also, like, after Eve hooks up with another guy in the building, the woman's like, nice job. Or Villanelle (laughs) does. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, So they have an interesting relationship and that's kind of the closest that Villanelle has to, like, a friend or family.
1: Although later that same episode, I just wanted to say that she's running on the treadmill and she's like practicing how to laugh and it sounds exactly like a porpoise. And it's like the best thing. At least I think she was practicing I think she was practicing how to laugh and not how to impersonate a porpoise.
0: Yeah, she like hears a woman's laughter on the radio and she imitates it. And then when she goes out with Sebastian, she uses that laugh and he's like, Oh, you're so cute. So it's like extremely effective. Like that's I love that like she watches someone imitates their expressions and nails it. Yeah. Oh, one more thing that um popped into my mind is just in terms of, like, how this show gives us a lot of great different representations of women. There's Elena, who we don't see much in the second season, but in the first season, she's just really... She never beats around the bush and she always says things the way they are so when um you know eve is working with her team and they're trying to figure out like oh what did Vill- villanelle do to this guy and kenny's like um she you know she did this and elena jumps in and she's like she cut his knob off <laughs> and she's just a great character and they're always like how would elena phrase this because she just always just cuts to the
1: chase And there's also this great scene where she had a really bad day and she's like i'm gonna go buy three bottles of wine and cry while humping my ex-boyfriend carolyn is like okay
0: yeah, she's like, yep. Right. yep. <laughs> like, that is that. what kind of day we have collectively had. Yeah, but then she's like, but also I love this job, and this was the best day of my life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, on the way out. Uh, she's an excellent character. She is. Do you want to jump into some recommendations? I just have
1: a quick one. I read this article. It is by Lindsey Krauss at the New York Times, and... It's an opinion piece, and it is called My Ex-Boyfriend's New Girlfriend is Lady Gaga. How do you compare yourself with one of the most famous women in the world? Amazing. It is amazing. So she – I really enjoyed the piece. I identified with a lot of it, but it's basically like, you know, like we're used to seeing – it it's not like none of us lived in the quote-unquote olden days before the internet, really, before social media and dating, but um, it's not like those days where you can break up somebody and never see them again. Like, you will constantly see pictures of your exes online with, like, their new wife and their baby or what have you. And I guess her phone started blowing up um, maybe a couple of weeks ago. She says, I was eating Vodka grapes at my desk on a recent Monday morning, gearing up to wrangle my inbox when my phone started buzzing. Check Facebook. Check Twitter. Are you okay? It was an emergency. My ex-boyfriend, I learned, had a new girlfriend, Lady Gaga. While I'd been watching the Super Bowl on television in New York, they were snuggling in her private box at the Hard Rock Stadium at Miami Gardens. And then it said, Page Six produced a deep dive into Lady Gaga's new quote-unquote mystery man. Refinery29 announced that Gaga was wearing 2020's hottest new accessory, a normal boyfriend. I dated this normal mystery man for seven years. Anyway, so she just goes through, like, the weirdness of, um, like, navigating when an ex is dating someone famous because you know we all tend to compare ourselves to our ex's current relationships and she actually ends on a really empowering note she says the point is Lady Gaga is living the ambitious life that we keep saying women should embrace. A quote I remember reading from her probably on Instagram says don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly who you are. It's so easy as you get older to find the best in who you've become to make the most of it and maybe even to get a little complacent about it. But if Lady Gaga can do what she wants and even expand on what she wants why not me too? Why not let being exactly who I am mean trying to be the best I could be. Lady Gaga continues to challenge herself to try new things to thrive.
0: I love that. Yeah. That sounds funny and great. I'll have to read it.
1: Yeah. Oh, one more quick part was she was going to an event that like that weekend after she found out and she said... I was going to wear a black dress I'd gotten on sale years ago to an event that weekend for probably the 27th time, but Lady Gaga would never do something like that. I've never owned anything that costs more than a week's worth of groceries, whereas she's a woman who wears pieces of raw meat on the red carpet. I went to a nice store I'd never been inside before, and I tried something on. The clerk asked me what the occasion was. I found out from Facebook my ex-boyfriend was dating Lady Gaga. I told her, and she looked me up and down. Huh. She said, really? The dress was too expensive, but I bought it anyway. Why should I accept less than Lady Gaga?
0: (laughs) That's great. It's so good. What did you find? So I recently watched the new Harley Quinn movie, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn, which I think the title has since been changed to Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey, because nobody was going to see the movie. And I will preface this by saying that I typically do not like DC movies at all. I mean, barring the Dark Knight series. yes, But especially hated... Suicide Squad, where we first got introduced to Margot Robbie's portrayal of Harley Quinn. And she's just treated horribly in that movie, and I hate it. But Harley Quinn, um, or the new movie, Birds of Prey, is so excellent. Uh, So it was written by Christina Hodson and directed by Kathy Yan. And basically, it picks up right after the end of Suicide Squad, like Harley Quinn and the Joker break up. And obviously, that was a horrible relationship. And so she's kind of on her own for the first time. And she announces to the world that she broke up with uh, the Joker, which means that she's no longer under his protection and that all these people who have gripes against her because she's kind of the worst are now like it's open season on her, they can go kill her. So she's having a terrible time. (laughs) Um, And Just Margot Robbie's portrayal of Harley Quinn is so good. She is so funny. She's so amazing. And this movie is all about her, like, getting together this band of girls who are all being victimized by this really horrible villain, Black Mask, I believe, who's played by Ewan McGregor. And it's just such a fun movie. It's so great. It just, like, gives these characters space that I think they don't typically have in superhero movies to just kick ass and be amazing and the fight sequences are so so good. I I was listening to this podcast about it and they were talking about how like you know when you're putting together like a fight sequence for a woman like she can't always fight exactly like a man because she might not have the same weight to put behind a punch. And you know they like they use their legs, they use props around them, they use really like crazy weapons and it is just so fun and so well choreographed and the music is amazing. There are all these great moments where like Harley Quinn and Black Canary are fighting and Harley Quinn s- says to Black Canary like here you need a hair tie she's like yes I really do and it's just like these moments of solidarity between women and like freeing themselves from this idea that they have to be like under the protection or control of a man that is just so good. It's a great movie. I am
1: really glad you said that because I saw the previews and I was like her accent bothers me and was not planning on watching
0: it but I'll check it out. Yeah, and I also heard that the actors did the majority of their own stunts, which I just loved because they're so impressive. And yeah, her accent is pretty silly, and everyone kind of hates her in the movie, but for some reason I love that about her. (laughs) She's still absolutely herself, even if everybody hates her.
1: That's delightful. I mean, it's not cool if you're being a dick to everybody and that's why they hate you, but I mean, there's still something in there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she definitely learns to have friendships with other women by... The end of the movie. Spoiler alert! um But I like that journey that she has to take. It's very cool. It's been great potting with you. You too. Thank you guys for
1: listening. Oh, quick note: if you're going to prepare yourself for our next episode, our next episode will be on Sex Education, which is available on Netflix. It's delightful.
0: And make sure you follow us on Instagram at Madeline Looks Back, and you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, so you'll be the first to know about new episodes. And make sure to review us on iTunes. This podcast is produced and edited by its hosts. The music is Lost Souls by Portrayal. You can find a list of all the articles and theorists we cited today in the show notes.